Today's episode is brought to you by Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast, and hear from the minds transforming healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more with the help of AI. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. What's up? This is your boy Lil Duval, and check out my podcast, Conversations with Unc, on the Black Effect Podcast Network. Each and every Tuesday, Conversations with Unc podcast feature casuals and in-depth talk about ebbs and flows of life and the pursuit of happiness. Unlike my work on stage, I tap into a more serious and sensitive side to give life advice and simply offer words of encouragement, yet remind folks to never forget to laugh. Every Tuesday, listen to Conversations with Unc, hosted by Lil Duval on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, a production of iHeartRadio. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick. And hey, we're back to anomalous imagery. Uh, in the previous episode of Stuff to Blow Your Mind, we were looking at uh, some some photographs that people uh, have uh, have wanted to sort into the proof of aliens confirmed column. And we ended up talking about reasons why that's not necessarily a, uh, a, a wise or well-informed move. And we thought we might come back to talk about more images of this sort. And you know what? Here we are. Yeah, in the last episode, and this is this is a situation where it's probably helpful if you listen to the last episode, but it's not necessarily a part one and part two. So I don't know. Do do what you do what you will uh, regarding these episodes. But in the last episode, we discussed the so-called Eltanen antenna, a deep sea photograph of something taken in 1964 that ultimately led to a positive identification of a specific species of deep sea sponge but also fed a great deal of paranormal and ufology speculation about alien technology and global energy grids and the like. Uh, We discussed how images and data like this that dwell in a kind of low-res realm of evidence often play into arguments for supernatural or otherworldly explanations instead of mundane natural world explanations. That's right. So we were developing an idea, somewhat jumping off of uh, some offhand terminology use and comments I've heard in interviews with a science writer and skeptical UFO researcher named Mick West. Uh, And I think the phrase I had heard him use at some point was the low information zone. But we were also talking about the idea of the low resolution zone. Uh, And so the idea we were developing was that it's in cases of evidence containing less information or existing in a space of lower resolution that supernatural or alien explanations 
tend to retain the aura of viability. Like they seem to some people like this might be a good explanation. And it's in cases of high resolution or high information where the photo, if it's a photo where it's like really sharp and taken from multiple angles and we have a good idea exactly where and when it was taken, maybe other people can go check up on it. People with relevant knowledge have had a look at it. These are the cases that end up very, very often having pretty clear explanations from within the known range of natural causes. In other words, there seems to be a pattern where a fuzzy photo creates way more mythology than a sharp one. And I think this is applicable uh, applicable in the broader sense, not just in pure resolution of photos, but in the general sense of information, like evidence that's kind of vague and fuzzy and not well situated within an informational context seems, oh, yeah, may maybe that is aliens. And the further you turn up the resolution, the more accurate information and context you have, the more often it seems like, oh, yeah, that's a plastic bag or that's an airplane or that's a constellation of stars. Yeah, and as, as we discussed in the last episode, and we'll continue to discuss here, to whatever extent you can also cut out the context for the image uh, or ignore the context and or ignore um, the, the uh, expertise in a given field that could be vital to understanding what you're looking at. Exactly, yeah. So the, the background knowledge of the observer can also be one of the information states, and that can be high information or low. Yeah, and it's not necessarily a situation either where someone is like willfully, I refuse to listen to the experts because because you know I I I know what I see. You know, sometimes it's maybe a, a little more nuanced than that. Um, so I do want to acknowledge that, but just throwing that out there as well. Uh, we'll come back to the ideas we roll forward. Now, another one of the ideas we talked about in the last episode was how popular it seems underwater images in particular are in the UFO slash UAP and general fringe explanation idea space. Of course, the uh, Eltanen object was an underwater photo. And I mentioned in the last episode the idea that apparently anomalous underwater images are especially useful nucleation points for these types of narratives because they're sort of inherently low resolution or low information. The details are often obscured. Images of things underwater often look weird, but you can't tell exactly what they are, which means you can start making up whatever explanation you find the most exciting. And I, I was thinking about how underwater imagery often qualifies as low information evidence in multiple dimensions at once. So like the original image is usually grainy and indistinct, uh, if it's taken in visible light, like if it's a photograph taken in visible light, light conditions are usually low, and sometimes there is, uh, you know, something something obscuring the image in the water. Maybe the water is cloudy, maybe not. Uh, sometimes the image is not even based on visible light. Maybe we're looking at a sonar image or something like that, which further complicates th the, your ability to identify what it is you're looking at. Uh, and sometimes things are even uh, obscured in other ways, like partially buried or have things on top of them. Beyond all this, objects and formations that may be common underwater do not seem common to people who spend their lives on land and on the surface. Think of the sponge we talked about last time. If you lived on the ocean floor, you'd probably recognize that it would be like a tree to you. You know, you've seen lots of these before, but not living on the ocean floor, that's that's totally weird. You've never seen anything like it. You have no idea what it could be. Yeah, as we, we touched on in that one, the, the so-called uh, antenna, uh, occurred as a singular 
object uh, w- without any uh, fellow antenna around it um, in this one photograph, but uh, previous dredges in the deep ocean had revealed places where they seemed to be quite numerous. That's right. Sometimes they're kind of a forest, but in this case it wasn't. It was just one standing alone in the image, so that, I don't know, that made it seem more monolithic and uh, mm-hmm. kind of strange and, and dangerous and inviting of uh, calling out <laughs> for, some, for some kind of otherworldly explanation. Finally, I was thinking about one more thing uh, about the low information nature of underwater images, especially in the case of deep sea objects. It's difficult, expensive, and sometimes impossible for other people to check the object for themselves because it's on the bottom of the ocean. So you are unlikely to get somebody else imaging the same thing with different equipment in different conditions to get more context and clarity unless it's like a like a really famous and valuable thing and you've you know published coordinates of exactly where it is there's like huge interest in it maybe but like for the most part if you're talking about something on the bottom of the ocean whatever imagery you release of it that you initially produce it's the, you know it that that's going to be all there is yeah yeah cuz i mean ultimately whether your idea is based in in just pure scientific uh, inquiry or if it's based in some sort of paranormal interest or some sort of fringe theory, you're still going to have to somehow get that funding together to pay for uh, an expedition to an extreme environment. Uh, And, you know, are the numbers going to add up at the end of the day? And in some cases, I think it might be more financially lucrative for an object to remain in the low information zone than it would be to increase the information, uh, because that Mm -hmm. might well dispel the mystique uh, surrounding it. Exactly. Yes. Because as we touched on in the first episode, you know, these images become kind of articles of faith within a, a given belief system, within a, within a given worldview. And yeah, you go down there, there's, you've got to admit, okay, you know, lining up with your hopes and dreams, maybe you'll get that high-res image of this thing. And it will literally change the way we think about ourselves and we think about the world. But what are the chances that you'll just it'll, it'll it'll be that face on Mars scenario, you know, where, oh, well, you realize that once you have some different imagery, uh, some different information to go on, uh, the face is not there at all. And then how are you going to feel? So this brings us to the particular underwater image that you dug up, Rob, that we're going to talk about today. This image is the so-called Baltic Sea Anomaly. Would you like to introduce it? Sure. Uh, yeah, the the. I found this the way probably I think a lot of people find it is that you find these various lists of uh, strange, unexplained things beneath the ocean, and uh, they're generally um, they're generally a, a weird array of, of of objects and alleged objects. Some of which are are verified realities. Some are you know blurry, low res images. Uh, but yeah, this um, this sonar image was taken by Swedish Ocean X on the floor of the northern Baltic Sea at the center of the Gulf of Bothnia in June 2011 uh, during a hunt for, I believe, possible sunken treasure. Uh, So they were on the lookout with their imagery for, you know, things that might be ships, things that might be man-made objects on the bottom. Um, Now, the image that came out of all of this, the sonar image, uh, has captured the imagination of uh, ufologists because it does look roundish, and many illustrations, and I want to stress that, illustrations based on this imagery, um, readily, and these will readily come up and search for you. Don't worry, you don't have to look hard for them. Uh, in fact, it's harder to sort of 
wean them out and just focus on the, the sonar data. Uh, they lean into this kind of interpretation of this roundish object as perhaps a Millennium Falcon-esque spaceship or perhaps something akin to the ship that the engineers have in the Alien franchise. Um, I was thinking something exactly that, that. Yeah, from Prometheus. It looks like that technology mm-hmm. style. Yeah, which is you know an iconic derelict spaceship that has mysteries aboard that we absolutely should unearth. <laughs> we actually absolutely should get in there and get some of that. Right. But I guess for now, we're just going to focus on this original sonar image that was released to the media back in the summer of 2011 by, uh, by again, OceanX, which is this Swedish treasure hunting and uh, salvage diving operation. Yeah. The actual image here uh, is definitely in the low information zone. And uh, various critics have pointed this out as a reason that not much can be made out of it, uh, aside from the consensus that we're, we're almost certainly looking at a geologic formation here and not a spaceship, um, not part of uh, a lost city on the bottom of the ocean, some part of a lost civilization. There are whole articles speculating that as well. And, you know, it's, it's worth driving home that, like, these ideas, just as pure ideas, are very exciting. Like, yeah, who wouldn't want to learn more about a possible alien spaceship on the bottom of the ocean? Who wouldn't want to hear more about a, a lost city? that was, uh, you know, Atlantis style that was swallowed up by the waves in ancient times. But more likely than anything, this is just geology down there. And if you're into geology, it's pretty exciting. But I guess we have to sort of look at the at the end of the day, perhaps geology doesn't have necessarily as much of an excitement value in the mainstream, or certainly in the in, in the, the fringe. Um, so if you're if, if you're given two possibilities, even though one is far more likely, some people are just going to go for the, the the sexier answer. And of course, the answer that uh, confirms or seems to confirm some ideas and um, aspirations one has for the universe. Interpretations I've come across, in addition to saying this is an alien spacecraft. Oh, and by the way, I, I should say early articles about this from around the time it was first released often like would draw outlines around parts of this sonar image, mm-hmm. like asking you to lean into certain shape interpretations. Uh, and one of the, the outlines that was often drawn was essentially the Millennium Falcon. So yeah. it, there's a weird kind of space where they can almost like, if you're a journalist doing an article and drawing an outline like that, you can be like, oh, it's just funny. You know, it's a funny joke, but also you probably know that you are getting some traffic from like playing into the hand of UFO interpretations. Yeah. I've also seen some where they're like, okay, these are stairs. And then this is, you know, pointing out like architectural, supposed architectural details on this object. And, uh, you know, again, you're, you're, you're a lot of people, if they're seeing this image for the first time, you're giving them all the interpretation, you're giving them the full script for interpreting this low res image. Right. But anyway, to come back to, so there are a lot of people who say, yeah, this is a crashed alien uh, flying saucer or crashed alien spacecraft or uh, crashed ancient human spacecraft from lost, you know, lost technology from an ancient civilization. There are also people who say it was a monument built by the Atlantean civilizations. They say Atlantis built this. It was like a temple. Uh, There are various flavors of secret Nazi interpretations. It's a it's a U-boat model we've never seen before. Some kind of underwater Nazi bunker. 
Oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, obviously, there's a great deal of uh, Nazi stuff once you get into the, um, the paranormal and fringe uh, movements. But what does it actually look like? I mean, if you take away the, the outlines and everything, what we can see in this image is that it is a, a kind of roughly circular looking texture on the ocean floor that has some parallel lines kind of running across it that, you know, you could well want to interpret as, as I don't know, something they're like grooves or tracks or walkways, uh, but also they could just be like layers of rock. You know, um, one of these images you included where it's been traced, it looks kind of like I'm going to I'm going to throw this out there. It looks kind of like one of the helmets of the the, the giant warriors from Nausicaa, uh, the Valley of the Wind, mm. uh, like on its side. So perhaps this is a remnant from uh, uh, from that time before the, the seven days of fire. Ooh. well, we certainly wouldn't want to awake it then. Yeah. Uh, but meddlesome men and their war machines, they want to anyway. So uh other claims about this image. So they say, uh, the people who discovered it say that the disc part of the object is roughly 60 meters wide or about 200 feet wide in, in diameter. Uh, it was found on the ocean floor at a depth of about 90 meters or 300 feet. Okay, so actually not that deep when it comes to, to ocean or seafloor. Uh, and again, this is in the Gulf of Bothnia, which is the northern part of the Baltic Sea between Sweden and Finland. Peter Lindbergh, one of the explorers behind the original image, claimed that the object was perfectly round, and uh, there is a sort of light-colored area on the seafloor extending away from the, the disc-shaped object that people say could be a runway or a streak cut in the seafloor from a crash landing. And then the next thing, this one starts being a real red flag for me. At some point, uh, Ocean X started saying that they tried to return to the object and get more information uh, about it and imagery of it. And they, they said that proximity to the object was causing all of their electronic equipment to malfunction. And they couldn't come within, I think they said, 200 meters of the object uh, w without all of their electronics failing. Hmm. Hmm. I'm, I'm a little doubtful of that kind of story. You know, given that this is near Finland, um, I would be shocked if, if no one has suggested that it might be the lost Sampo, um, which, of course, is this um, object from Finnish mythology that was essentially like a, you know, it, it brought riches and good fortune and, uh, uh, and treasures. It, it was this, uh, this font of wealth. And uh, if memory serves, like the myth is that it was lost at sea during a battle. Uh, so... I don't know. Sounds like it could be the Sampo if I'm going to lean into <laughs> mythology for my interpretation. Do they say what the Sampo looks like? Um, I've seen some illustrations where it is actually kind of um, kind of round. Yeah. But I think maybe smaller. I don't know. OK. Wiki at least mentions a bunch of different ways it's been depicted and they are wide ranging. So I would guess in the original they don't say the shape it takes. But uh, it says here it could be. Anything from a world pillar to a compass or astrolabe or a bunch of other things, a coin die, a shield. Uh, so why not a giant disc at the bottom of the ocean? Yeah. Now, one of the reasons that people say this must be a spaceship or some other piece of uh, out-of-place technology is, I think, essentially an intuitive reaction to certain patterns of geometry. When you look at this sonar image, it appears to be a large circular disk. Uh, in some versions, m 
the circular disk appears to be made out of smaller rectangles or squares and a circle filled in with rectangles or squares. That doesn't sound like any natural object I've ever seen. So it just looks like it could not be natural. It had to be made. Now, regarding the square tiles or rectangular tiles uh, appearance, in this particular sonar image, the, the one we've been looking at here, there are different versions of it you can find on the internet. But even the fact that it, it appears to be made of the rectangular blocks or tiles, I think is actually somewhat influenced by the fact that the image has some sort of digital artifact lines running parallel from top to bottom across the image. And these parallel bars crossing the image are not just on the object, but they're covering the whole bitmap. And thus, they are obviously a byproduct of the imaging process, not a reflection of the object itself. Mm. The image is also lined up so that these parallel lines are exactly perpendicular to some ridges or lines that seem to actually be on the object, whatever it is, that seem to sort of run parallel across it. So I think these digital imaging artifacts create a false impression of a kind of right-angled brickwork pattern that is not actually present on the object itself. That's just a byproduct of the way the image looks with these uh, lines running up and down on it on the images we see. Second thing is, Rob, you already mentioned this, but the illustrations. This is another case, just like we talked about last time, of what was originally a low-resolution or low-information piece of evidence being subject to uh, mythologizing and grandiose elaborations in artworks. So if you Google image search this object, results containing the actual sonar image will be vastly outnumbered by full-on fictional illustrations. I've included a few for you to look at here, Rob. Folks at home, you can look them up yourself. Uh, just type in Baltic Sea Anomaly. To be clear, these are not photos of the actual object. They are imaginative artworks. All of the interesting and provocative sharp detail shown in them is made up. But articles and videos about the object seem to use things like this nonetheless. It's kind of like... Uh, look, here's one way of imagining what this could look like up close, if you could see it sharply. And for some people, this seems to suggest it's legitimate to assume that's the way it actually is. Yeah. And to be clear, this can also take place at kind of a subliminal, um, you know, consumer level where uh, you're just, you, you pull up a bunch of images of this thing. And yeah, most of the ones on your page are going to be uh, perhaps leaning into uh, some sort of fantastic illustration. And the illustrations are cool. Like you can't help but look at this and, and feel a certain kind of way. Yeah, I don't want to knock the artists, but I mean, just like to emphasize, these are not images yeah. of a thing in the world. These are uh, essentially fictional artworks that are based on a grainy, indistinct original image. Now, I want to throw out another um, wild speculation. What if this is a tetromino or a Tetris block? And really, instead of trying to get down there to it, what we need to do is construct a tetromino to interlock with it and mm. drop it down and <laughs> make sure that we have lined it up appropriately uh, so that it will fill in the space next to it. Well, that's a great point, but it would have to be a kind of hybrid uh, uh, game piece because it like one half of it seems to be a tetronimo. It's got the blocky parts that seem like they could interlock. And then the other half is rounded like a connect four piece. So maybe mm. it is for a, a hybrid type game, something we haven't seen yet. 
<laughs> I mean, this does touch on the, the reality. It's like it's not square enough. It's not it doesn't have enough right angles that it really shouts um, unnatural object as loudly as some would perhaps insist that it does. It's also not round enough. It doesn't have the and that, that would not in either case would necessarily uh, mean that it is not of this world. But certainly, like those are the sorts of shapes one would want to see in their spaceship. You would want to see a more perfect circle. You would want to see a lot of uh, angles that that we usually don't think of as occurring naturally in nature. Shout out to Astapro for sponsoring this episode and providing us with free samples. Rob, as the uh, the local host with allergies here, they sent you some of their nasal spray to treat your allergies. What was your experience like? Yeah, that's right. I always wrestle with the pollen a bit when it rolls in during the spring. So they sent me the little uh, nasal spray. I tried out the product and yeah, it sure did help me get on top of my symptoms for the day. And it's so fast acting, uh, it was already kicking in before I left the house. Astapro is a first-of-its-kind nasal allergy spray. It's the fastest 24-hour over-the-counter allergy spray. It starts working in 30 minutes, while other allergy sprays take hours. Astapro is the first and only 24-hour steroid-free allergy spray. Astapro delivers full prescription-strength indoor and outdoor allergy relief from nasal congestion, runny and itchy nose, and sneezing. Get fast-acting nasal allergy symptom relief with Astapro. Go to astaproallergy.com for a discount so you can get Astapro and go today. A-S-T-E-P-R-O allergy.com. Astapro and go. Use this directed for relief of nasal congestion, runny nose, sneezing, and itchy nose due to allergies. Today's episode is brought to you by Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast from Ruby Studio in partnership with Intel. Explore the future of technology that's rapidly evolving our world today with the help of AI. There's still so much work and research needed to fully understand the power and potential of AI, and Intel is at the forefront of implementing AI in revolutionary technology that's changing the world we live in for the better. In each episode, Graham interviews the minds transforming medicine and healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more while pioneering new uses for AI in these spaces. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Today's episode is brought to you by Visible. If you haven't heard of Visible, now you have. They're the wireless carrier that's making wireless visible. It's in the name. Get a one-line plan with unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon, just $25 a month, every month, taxes and fees included. Having a one-line plan means you only need you to save. No estranged roommates, exes, cousins twice removed, or AI-powered humanoid robots needed. And because $25 a month really means $25 a month, you can call, text, stream, whatever, as much as you want without worrying about getting dinged at the end of the month. No hidden fees, no surprises. No, really. It's like the old saying goes, you can't judge a book by its cover, but you can judge a company by its name. So spread the word. Tell all your friends there's a wireless company out there with transparency in their name, and they're called Visible. 
Start saving on wireless today at Visible.com. Monthly rate on the Visible plan for data management practices and additional terms, visit Visible.com. We will come back to, in a minute, uh, commentary on the sonar image itself and what kind of conclusions we should draw from it. But let's say that this did actually depict an object at the bottom of the ocean that had some, that looked like it had sort of some blocks or some rectangular Mm -hmm. bricks in it. In the spirit of the uh, previous episodes, let's talk about sponges that look like technology. I think it's time for let's talk about natural rock formations that look like architecture. There are lots of them. Uh, You can just Google lists of things that are natural geologic formations that look like things made by humans or made by intelligence, maybe alien intelligence. Uh, So I wanted to just focus on one example because I thought the images were so striking. Let's look at what is called tessellated pavement. Now, to be clear, I'm not saying that's what this is an image of. I'm just citing this as an example of things that are natural geologic formations that totally look like they could not be, that they must have been made by intelligence. Rob, uh, you can have a look at the photos I included for you. Uh, How would you describe these? So um, one of these images, the one with the sunset over it, uh, this is one of my favorite images. Uh, I I used to have this on my computer as was one of my like desktop wallpapers. It's just so splendid to look at. Um, and it does, it looks kind of otherworldly. It, it's, it has a, like a psychedelic feel to it. It just makes you feel nice. Uh, a couple of the other images of this sort of uh, thing um, maybe le- feel less surreal, less visionary, and, and more like, oh, this was once a shopping mall of some sort. Like clearly some sort of structure was built here and it's gone. So I don't know if shopping malls of the gods. Okay, but you're saying shopping mall because it's got rectangular paving stones, right? Where you're looking at like a flat expanse of rock that reaches out into the surf. So you can see the ocean beyond. And then all across the surface of this rock, there are just rectangular tiles, basically. Yeah, rectangular tiles, rectangular spaces. And you you get this sense, like if you've ever seen a, bu- a large building like a, you know, a, a, a storage facility, factory or a mall and it's been torn down like and, and the junk has been cleared away and you're just left with the with the, with the base. It often looks something like this, you know, where you can see where rooms used to be. You can see bits of of tiling, etc. Uh, so, yeah, it it it's it whispers some sort of human origin when you look at it. If you again, if you don't have the proper context and uh, the proper expertise. So all of these photos that uh, you're looking at here, Rob, are of the same rock formation, which can be found on an isthmus in the Australian state of Tasmania. The isthmus is called the Eagle Hawk Neck, and it's on the southeast of uh, Tasmania, connecting the mainland to the Tasman Peninsula. I mentioned that these formations are known as tessellated pavements. Tessellated is a uh, synonym for tiled, so it means uh, the practice of covering a surface with tightly locking tiles. And it's called this because, of course, it looks like a tiled floor or a pavement made by human hands. Now, how on earth could natural processes ever produce something that looks like this? Well, I found a passage in an academic book that discusses this very thing. So the book is called The Coastlines of the World with Google Earth, Understanding Our Environment by Sheffers, Sheffers, and Kelletot, uh, published by Springer, 2012. 
The authors say that these formations are rare, and they seem to only occur in sedimentary rock platforms located in the intertidal zone. Intertidal means that the rocks are covered by seawater at high tide and then uncovered at low tide. So they can go through patterns of, uh, of wetting with seawater and then drying out. And they also tend to occur only in low-energy coasts, meaning coasts without very strong wave action. So the authors write that these tessellated patterns in Tasmania in particular began millions of years ago when fractures formed in siltstone due to stress in the Earth's crust sometime between like 60 million and 160 million years ago. In geology, these cracks that, uh, that form in large bodies of rock are known as joints, and they're found in all kinds of rock, most often appearing as patterns of cracking that extend all the way through this big body of rock. Uh, and sometimes, for a variety of reasons, these patterns can be parallel or otherwise surprisingly regular and symmetrical. Another striking pattern of jointing in large bodies of rock that might look unnatural to some is hexagonal jointing. If you've ever seen, uh, you know, columns of basalt that have hexagonal shapes, that, that's another type of strange jointing. It doesn't look like that could happen in nature, but it does. Uh, that's caused by uh, just patterns of how certain types of rock cool and then crack as they cool. In the case of the tessellated pavements here, you get kind of rectangular patterns of cracks. And in the time since the jointing occurred in this rock, the cracked sedimentary rock has been exposed to the surface and to the tides, which have caused it to erode in a way that accentuated the rectangular grid of cracks in what's known as pan and loaf formations. So the basic difference here is that some of these rectangles seem to be sort of raised at the outline and then depressed in the middle where they can you know, hold pools of water in them. And then other ones seem to be kind of raised in the middle and depressed at the outline. So in the middle, they sort of puff up like a maybe like a cobblestone or like the top of a loaf of bread rising over the pan. Hmm. The authors write that at areas farther away from the uh, contact with the water, the pavement spends a longer time drying out during low tide, which gives more opportunity for salt crystals to form on top of uh, the rock. And these salt crystals erode the rock surface, and the erosion happens faster inside the pan than it does in the cracks around the pan, uh, you know, forming the rim. So you end up with this depressed pan appearance where it can hold pools of water. Meanwhile, the loaf formations are closer to the water. There's less drying in between tides, less salt crystal, uh, less salt crystallization, and more erosion just due to uh, water flowing in the cracks in between the, the the rectangles and like sand and abrasion eroding those. So you end up getting this raised, puffed bread-like uh, kind of appearance. Rob, I've got another image for you to look at that is more of the loaf formation down below here. Yeah, this is the one in black and white. And man, these really, really do look like human-made bricks, but it's a natural formation. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you if you just glanced at it, even if you, I, I don't know, I, I guess if you looked at it long enough, you might wonder why the bricks are not of uniform size. Mm -hmm. um, but certainly the, it, it, it smacks of masonry. It smacks of, of brickwork. 
So that's just one example, but I hope that should be a convincing illustration yet again that we should not always trust our intuitions about what looks natural and what looks intelligently designed. We are presented with example after example of things that look like they must be technology or they must be architecture. They must have been built by intention and intelligence, but are actually just totally uncontroversially a result of biological evolution or geological and hydrological processes, just things that happen in nature without any human intervention or alien intervention. So my point there is that without the relevant expertise in, say, uh, marine biology or geology or whatever it is, it's easy to sort something into the unexplainable column when, in, in fact, it just like totally looks like something that is well known if you happen to know about certain things. Right. Today's episode is brought to you by Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast from Ruby Studio in partnership with Intel. Explore the future of technology that's rapidly evolving our world today with the help of AI. There's still so much work and research needed to fully understand the power and potential of AI, and Intel is at the forefront of implementing AI in revolutionary technology that's changing the world we live in for the better. In each episode, Graham interviews the minds transforming medicine and healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more while pioneering new uses for AI in these spaces. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Today's episode is brought to you by Visible. If you haven't heard of Visible, now you have. They're the wireless carrier that's making wireless visible. It's in the name. Get a one-line plan with unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon, just $25 a month, every month, taxes and fees included. Having a one-line plan means you only need you to save. No estranged roommates, exes, cousins twice removed, or AI-powered humanoid robots needed. And because $25 a month really means $25 a month, you can call, text, stream, whatever, as much as you want without worrying about getting dinged at the end of the month. No hidden fees, no surprises. No, really. It's like the old saying goes, you can't judge a book by its cover, but you can judge a company by its name. So spread the word. Tell all your friends there's a wireless company out there with transparency in their name, and they're called Visible. Start saving on wireless today at Visible.com. Monthly rate on the Visible plan for data management practices and additional terms, visit Visible.com. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can waste another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can conquer it. I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. Any road, the steeper the better because my all-new Santa Fe is available with H-Track all-wheel drive so I can hit the trail without a worry in the world. Heck, with three rows and best-in-class rear cargo space, I can pack the whole family in with all our gear. We've got available dual wireless charging for our phones so we'll never lose touch with civilization and we won't lose touch with the primordial power of Mother Earth. So which is it? Waste the weekend 
or do something a little more epic and conquer it in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. But to come back to the sonar image from the Baltic Sea, the Baltic Sea anomaly, uh, which again, some are quick to uh, label an anomaly in need of explanation based in aliens or Atlantis or secret Nazi technology. Again, all of this speculation is only possible because we're operating in the zone of low resolution. One problem here is that you and I and most people looking at this image lack context. We don't know much about the Baltic seafloor. We also don't know anything about how sonar images are produced. Is it possible that we could get a, a higher information perspective by asking somebody who knows about those things? So I came across an article published in February 2012 in Popular Mechanics called Underwater UFO, Get Real, Experts Say by Douglas Maine. And this article consulted uh, several uh, experts for perspective on this, this sonar image. One was Hanumant Singh, who was at the time a researcher with the Woods Hole Oceanographic Institute. I think now he's a professor at Northeastern University. Uh, who has a number of research focuses, I found, including robotics and things in that domain, but also, quote, imaging in visually degraded environments, including underwater and in polar regions. Oh, well, that's perfect. So what did Singh have to say about the anomaly? Well, he cautioned that we should not put too much trust in the sonar image itself for a number of reasons. He says it was created using a type of sonar technology called side-scan sonar, uh, which is perfectly useful for locating large objects like sunken ships, but could potentially introduce false details into an image if it's not functioning correctly. And he cited several indications in the image itself that the sonar should not be trusted. He said that there are signs of crosstalk between the two different instruments that are used to create the image. He says uh, one channel is electrically contaminating the other, and this results in parts of the image on one side being mirrored and reflected onto the other side of the map. Mm. He also says that the black parallel lines in the image, I already mentioned these earlier just because I didn't have any expertise, but I just noticed that these create the false impression that the disk is more uh, made of rectangular blocks than it probably actually is. Um, he said that these black parallel lines in the image showed that there are places where the sonar is dropping out. So that's a, an image quality problem. Uh, he also says that the, the edges of the image have lost detail, uh, also showing that the sonar is not calibrated properly. This article also consulted someone named Charles Paul, who is a senior scientist at the Monterey Bay Aquarium Research Institute, who said that even if the sonar image is roughly is a roughly accurate picture of what's down there, there's no reason to think it's a spaceship. It could be, first of all, a roughly circular rock outcropping. No reason that's implausible. Or, he says, quote, the result of fluid or gas venting. Such venting causes inexplicable and poorly understood structures like pockmarks, circular depressions that Paul has seen all around the world. In one area off California alone, he says he has mapped more than 1,400 such pockmarks. So gas venting from the seafloor can cause unusual formations. That's something you wouldn't know if you weren't familiar with looking at the seafloor. Another possible explanation, which I thought was very interesting, Remember how this, this thing is actually not all that deep. It's only about 300 feet down. And because it's not all that deep, Paul says it could be a pattern created by a fishing trawl. 
Quote, for example, Paul says the jaws or opening of a trawl could easily have struck the bottom elsewhere and dropped a disc-like mound of sediment or a trail of pebbles that make up the track marks, he says. Another option mentioned in this article, Hanumat Singh even said that the original image could have been produced by fish. Uh, he describes how the, the use of side-scan sonar can produce all sorts of confusing images and often has to be double-checked by passing back again from another angle to really figure out what it was you saw on the first pass. Now, I wanted to mention uh, one more article from 2012 that addresses this and interviews a, a relevant expert who had access to some materials that may have been from the object. Uh, this article is by the science writer Natalie Wolkover. It's from August 30th, 2012, called Mysterious Baltic Sea Object is a Glacial Deposit. Uh, so this article was written after the the head of this, uh, or one of the heads of this OceanX group, uh, Peter Lindbergh, was in the media again and had been making statements, I think, on a radio program about the nature of the seafloor object being very mysterious and unsolved and baffling to scientists. Uh, he claimed it had stair formations that may have been constructed and seemed to be being kind of ambiguous, but uh, saying things like, if this is Atlantis, that would be amazing. Now, apparently, the explorers who discovered this, this sonar image at one point gave some rock samples to a researcher uh, in Sweden named Volker Brukert, who is an associate professor of geology at Stockholm University, gave him some rocks for analysis. These rocks, uh, I couldn't find a lot about exactly how they were sourced, but they allegedly came from the object. So I guess they're claiming to have collected them on a dive. Brukert was then quoted in a Swedish tabloid in a way that ambiguously suggested he might be, he like, it's kind of an ambiguous quote. He says, you know, oh, it's surprising to find this, this black rock here. And the ambiguity suggests he might be signing on to the idea that this object is actually quite mysterious and unexplainable by science. But when other journalists followed up with him, uh, this same scholar was not of that opinion at all, that it was like a baffling, unexplainable thing. He said that the rocks they gave him, uh, whether they came from the object or not, were mostly just ordinary seafloor rocks with one exception which was a piece of basaltic rock, which is made out of hardened lava and not normally the kind of rock you'd find all over the floor of the Baltic Sea. But it's still not all that baffling because rocks get moved, moved around. And in this case, it's very likely this kind of rock could have been left at the bottom of the Baltic Sea by a glacier. Brukert says in a statement uh, uh, given for this article, quote, because the whole northern Baltic region is so heavily influenced by glacial thawing processes, both the feature and the rock samples are likely to have uh, formed in connection with glacial and post-glacial processes, he wrote. Possibly these rocks were transported there by glaciers. Mm. Uh, so th this is another fascinating thing about nature. You know, nature is very weird glaciers can get rocks stuck in them. They pick up a rock from one place, carry that rock to another place as the glaciers move. Then when the glacier melts, it drops the rock. And this leaves behind rocks that are called glacial erratics, rocks that are out of place because a glacier carried them to the place where they now rest. Now, this is obviously a slow process compared yes. to the imagined fast process of alien spaceship settling down from the, the bottom of the sea. Right. So I, I would say, based on everything I've read about this, 
we don't really know what the object in the sonar image is, uh, but this one geologist suggests that the best guess is that it's some sort of rock formation left over by the freezing and thawing of glaciers from the last glacial maximum, uh, from the, you know, from the last uh, peak of the Ice Age. So I don't think I would sort this one exactly like the Eltanen antenna, where in that case, I would say it's, you know, 99.9% certain we know exactly what that image is of. And when you have the right context, you can identify it. In this case, it, it seems like there's a little more wiggle room. It's like this is a grainy image. We don't know what it was exactly. And uh, there are some good candidates, but there's not really enough information to zero in on one and be certain. And looking for more recent sources on this, good Lord, there are some, but they are mostly hosted on like tabloid sites that felt like they were just made of high density malware. Uh, they would make numerous unbelievable sounding claims, like repeating the stuff about how like all of the electronics malfunctioned when they tried to get near the object again. And th they would lean heavily on images that appeared to be fake without clarifying where the images came from, which I find very annoying. Also, they don't appear to, like, I'm fine with using, like, fake illustrations if it's clearly labeled, like, this is not the object. This is an, you know, an artist's imagination. Mm -hmm. uh, but also, like, they don't appear to add much of anything new except additional wild claims from the Internet. For example, vague claims I read on some article with no sourcing that the object contains metals not possible to produce on Earth. Uh, so I just, I don't know if that's worth addressing. But as far as I can tell, uh, this is sort of peak low information zone, right? It, it's an indistinct and grainy, but weird looking original photo produced with a fragile imaging system that is uh, well known to spit out all kinds of errors and artifacts. And it is presented to the media in a way that encourages interesting, unusual explanations like, you know, it, for example, just drawing the spaceship outline around it is kind of like, hey, you know, maybe think about it as a spaceship or saying that it might be constructed as if, you know, by an ancient civilization or something. And then coming up with a story about why you can't produce more high quality images, electrical equipment malfunctions in the vicinity, etc. So I don't know. I checked in and it seems like the explorers are... They had at some point been working on a documentary about this and, and were claiming that th there would be more to come about it. But I would say, I don't know, for now, this is it's stuck in that low resolution, low information area. And if we if we were to get better information on it, I strongly suspect it would turn out to be just a kind of interestingly shaped rock. Yeah, it would turn out to be either an interestingly shaped rock or there would be nothing. And in a way, that's. That's the, the, the worst answer, right? Because you can always just move the goalpost on it. You can say, well, I guess the ship moved. It, oh. I guess it was a functional spaceship. Um, and so the mystery continues. Uh, that, in a way, that like proves what we thought it was. Or, hey, if anyone wants to take up my Sampo theory, uh, well, clearly um, some of the major powers of this world saw that it was the Sampo and they went and claimed the Sampo and they're busy getting the Sampo back online somewhere to produce, uh, you know, unlimited riches. But in either case, you know, it's like, uh, like we've been saying, it's, it's, it's a far simpler exercise to turn to explanations for which we have additional data uh, that we can, we can look at other rock formations and say, yes, this is potentially the sort of thing that's happening here. We can look at other glacial situations and say, yeah, this is potentially um, the model at work here, and we have examples of this model. 
Whereas when you turn to UFOs, when you turn to the lost city of Atlantis or the Sampo, um, you know, these are not things for which we have um, any additional reputable data to really throw in to compare it to. There are no solid examples of those to compare it to. Yeah, exactly. There are a lack of dependable analogies, mm-hmm. which, yeah, should should make you hesitate before resorting to that kind of explanation. And the other thing, again, is just like when when you're in the low resolution zone or the low information zone, it's okay to just reserve judgment. You know, you can like it's important to acknowledge like we don't have a lot of information here. So, you know, it's just you can't really say what this is. Yeah. More information is required. Oh, and I forgot to mention this until now, but also there was an article I found where the divers uh, from OceanX did release some photos allegedly of the object. So not sonar, but like camera photographs allegedly taken of the object on a dive. But uh, you can't really see what you're looking at. Uh, Rob, I've shared uh, a link to a CBC article with you here that includes uh one of these photos and yeah it just looks like a rock it's just like a like a kind of blurry piece of rock with like the glare of a flashlight shining off of it so it's not really doesn't really add any information as far as i can tell hmm yeah i you know i I, cbc does great work um and uh i have no reason to doubt that this is an actual underwater picture yet at the same time the the closer I look at it, the, I get more of a feel that this is like skin. Like this really feels like I feel like I see the the crease between like thigh and groin uh, <laughs> taken in a, like maybe in underwater. I don't know. Is that a pimple I see? Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, I mean, just it, it just speaks to the ambiguity of the shot. Like it's what is it? It's kind of whatever you want it to be. Uh, in fact, one paragraph in the CBC write-up uh, of these photos says, quote, The new photos released Friday lacked perspective and were apparently taken during the Ocean Explorer team's most recent dive. Okay. Well, there you go. Uh, it, it just an, another piece of, of evidence that um, could be something, but could be absolutely nothing. And like, again, I just really feel like I'm looking at somebody's leg here. Like, isn't it, is it, I feel like I see stretch marks, you know? Yeah, I know what you're saying. Like, I'm not just trying to be a, a, you know, a geek here and, uh, you know, making fun of somebody's UFO information, but this really feels fleshy, but almost, but not like 100%. Like, I'm also like, what's the shape of this person? But, oh my goodness, I don't know. Well, I see exactly what you're saying. Yes, it does look like stretch marks in skin, but it also looks like it could be striations in sandstone. If you ever see those bands in sandstone. I'm not even saying that's what it is because once again, for the millionth time, like, it's just not clear what it is. Not enough information to decide. Yeah. All right, well, we're going to go ahead and close this episode out, but we're going to continue this line of thought in the next episode of Stuff to Blow Your Mind on Thursday. We're going to get into the realm of Egyptology and, of course, pseudoscience and pseudo-history and look at some other examples where if you take something um, out of context, if you take something without uh, proper you know, expertise applied to some degree, then, yeah, you can, you can make various interpretations that speak of, of ancient high-tech civilizations and alien involvement and, and whatever it is you, you happen to look for, or even the Sampo, the Sampo moving through time and emerging uh, in ancient Egypt, I'm sure. I really like that you're cementing the, the Sampo theory as like a new, a new major thread of, of fringe explanation. 
I think it 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 deserves its due. Yeah, and uh, I mean, the sampo is pretty interesting. We could come back. We could come back and cover sampo on both stuff to blow your mind and Weird House Cinema because there's also a great movie about the sampo. Okay, I'm gonna have to research this thing. There actually, there's more than one potentially interesting movie about the sampo. Now that I think about it. Anyway, that'll be a tale for another time. So in the meantime, if you want to check out other episodes of Stuff to Blow Your Mind, our core uh, science and culture episodes publish on Tuesdays and Thursdays. On Mondays, we do listener mail. On Wednesdays, we do a short-form monster fact or artifact episode. And on Fridays, we set aside most serious concerns to just talk about a weird film on Weird House Cinema. Huge thanks to our excellent audio producer, J.J. Posway. If you would like to get in touch with us with feedback on this episode or any other, to suggest a topic for the future, or just to say hello, you can email us at contact at stufftoblowyourmind.com. Stuff to Blow Your Mind is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app. Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Today's episode is brought to you by Visible. The future of wireless is here, and it's transparent. Switch to Visible, the wireless company that makes wireless visible. Get a one-line plan with unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon. Just $25 a month, every month, taxes and fees included. No hidden fees, no surprises, no, really. What are you waiting for? Get with the times and switch to Visible at Visible.com. Monthly rate on the Visible plan for data management practices and additional terms, visit Visible.com. Rev up your thrills this summer at Cedar Point on the all-new Top Thrill 2. Drive the sky on the world's tallest and fastest triple-launch vertical speedway. And now, for a limited time, get more Cedar Point fun for less with our limited-time bundle for just $49.99. Get admission, parking, and all-day drinks for one low price. But you better hurry, because this bundle won't last long. Save now at cedarpoint.com. Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cd for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA.